The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. There's no one more qualified to lead the Department of Defense than Mark Esper. Well, thank you, Mr. President, for your kind words, for your confidence in me, and for this incredible opportunity. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. President Trump endorsed me because he said I was smart, tough, and I will never let you down. Mehmet has flip-flopped on every major issue. He essentially said that he was worried about the pro-life movement. This is a tougher pick for him. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics, a special edition today. For sound on as we speak with former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, hired and fired by Donald Trump. And soon here we'll be talking with him about his new book. We'll talk about his experience running the Pentagon during the Trump era, his decision to protect the country from within rather than speak out and his eventual firing via Twitter. An extended conversation coming up with the former secretary. Later, we're joined by Bloomberg's Eric Larson to bring you inside his conversation with Donald Trump about the lawyer who's bringing a more aggressive defense for the former president. And we'll have analysis today from Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. We'll talk as well with Bloomberg National Security Correspondent Dan Flatley. It was July 23rd, 2019, inside the Oval Office. The U.S. Senate had just confirmed the new Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, vote of 90 to 8. President Trump brought the fanfare, set up a podium right next to his desk in the Oval to speak. He even had Supreme Court Justice Alito on hand. For the swearing in, the president spoke to the reporters, the family members of Mark Esper in the room. Here's what it sounded like. There's no one more qualified to lead the Department of Defense than Mark Esper, a West Point graduate, great student, actually. Secretary Esper served our military for 21 years, including in the Gulf War. He also advanced U.S. national security in government and in private sector, most recently as Secretary of the Army where he played a critical role training and equipping our armed forces. That's where I got to know Mark. And there was nobody that did a better job than Mark. And there's nobody that loves it more than Mark. And thank you very much. Sounds pretty good. Well, Secretary Esper would be fired the following year. The former Army Secretary says he started writing his book almost immediately afterward. It is called A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. And it's already been quite controversial. The secretary describes harrowing moments from his time in the White House, his decision to protect the nation from the president, from inside the administration, rather than blow the whistle publicly. And Secretary Esper joins us now on Bloomberg. Secretary, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you. Congratulations on your book. You've had to answer some critics who question your decision to remain part of the administration. What would have happened if you did speak out? Well, thanks, Joe, first of all, for having me on and uh, giving a, having a chance to talk about my book and my experiences. And, you know, let me take back to the opening scene there where you described the president and his description of me as as secretary. And you, you noted that I was sworn in by 
Justice Alito. And the reason being, and it gets to the kind of the heart of the matter here, is uh, when you swear on a Secretary of Defense in particular, you want to be clear to the American people that you're swearing an oath to the Constitution and not mm -hmm. to the president. Mm -hmm. That's why the president does not swear in the Secretary of Defense. And that gets to the, you know, the story of my book and the title, and that is a sacred oath, because the oath is to the Constitution, not uh, to a yeah. president, not to a party, and not to a philosophy. And that was what governed my thinking throughout my tenure. And it gets to this kind of key point where you're asking, uh, you know, uh, why did I decide to stay, particularly after June 1st? And it's mm -hmm. actually quite simple. I, although I wrestled with it a great deal. I, I talked about it with my wife. I consulted uh, previous uh, sec defs from both parties, even the late General Colin Powell. And to a person, they recommended I stay because at the end of the day, I thought uh, my higher duty was to the country in staying to do two things. One, advance some important things we were doing at the Pentagon in terms of modernizing the military, shoring up friends and allies, improving cyber capabilities, and so on. But at the same time, being able to be within the, uh, within the administration, push back on bad ideas being promoted by those around the president and others. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. that became kind of my what I was trying to achieve in those final five or six months of office is to get DOD uh, get the country to election without any DOD politicization or involvement in our election. You decided to write a book. Why not speak out when you left? Well, I, you know, you know of course, I spoke out uh, with my fellow secretaries of defense on January 3rd. We wrote yes, an op-ed expressing our concern. And uh, of course, you know, look, at that time, the election was over. I was fired, Joe, on November 9th. Mm -hmm. The American people decided they wanted a different president and uh, it was settled, right? And so uh, what I quickly did was put pen to paper because I wanted to tell the story sooner rather than later. And of course, I finished, I think, the first draft in April, May and submitted to the DOD and it took nine, 10 months. Yeah. Eventually I had to sue DOD to release it, all of it. And so that was a, a whole other process in and of itself. But here we are. I'm gonna ask you about that in a minute. You suggest in the book, uh, Secretary, that, that you never heard of your replacement, Christopher Miller. Was he the kind of person you were afraid might take the helm if you were removed? Well, I think I only met him once in a situation room, shook his hand, but I really don't know him. And I, I don't know, you know, uh, you, you know, you can judge for yourself the performance of the team that was he, that he came in with and was put around him. And we saw within days of my firing that the president was calling people in, uh, asking, should we attack Iran and do this and that? And, and uh, disappointingly, I think, as, as others have reported, he supported an attack on Iran. And fortunately, others pushed back on that. Uh, and then we have everything else that led up to uh, January 6th. So that, you know, part of my concern was uh, that they would they the president would install uber loyalists who would take the, the country in a bad direction and, and the institution of the Defense Department itself as well. Yeah. And he did. Uh, you mentioned you had to sue the Department of Defense over the redactions that the DOD made in the book. What parts of the book did they want to classify or had they classified, Mark? Well, the first go around, it was, uh, you know, words, sentences, paragraphs from over 50 pages. And notably, it's the one story I tell about uh, the president's uh, interest in attacking or shooting missiles into Mexico. Oh, my God. And I, look, none of this was classified. And, and, and I still there is some redacted stuff still that's classified that uh, that I kept in the book only to make a point. But nonetheless, none of this was classified. It was all about uh, things being politically embarrassing or uncomfortable for I see. Uh, for others. And I thought, no, that's wrong. We should tell the American people the full history so they understand what was happening. The, the, the missiles in Mexico are just, just one story. You describe a president uh, 
who, who seemed dangerously ignorant when it came to, to military matters, suggesting sending missiles to bomb cartels in Mexico, the wondering if China had a hurricane gun shooting at protesters. Secretary, how long were you on the job before you realized he was serious about some of these ideas? Well, look, not, not all presidents come into office understanding the military. I, you you got to accept that to begin with. And mm-hmm. the, the problem was, is he surrounded himself by, by people of, uh, who didn't understand either, who would put you know, crazy ideas in front of him. And so part of my job as Secretary of Defense and other cabinet members is to you know, work with the president, kind of educate him about the military. And if, as people come up with ideas, is to, is to either support them, expand on them, push back, whatever the case may be. Look, on this idea that he had about Mexico, the president was genuinely sincere about wanting to deal with drugs in the streets of America. I mean, we yeah. all get that, right? We all know sure. people who are affected by it, but that's not the way to do it. There are other ways to do it. And I kind of proposed alternatives or told him I'd come back and work with others on some ideas. And that's, that's my job. But, uh, you know, you constantly, there, it seemed there were people proposing ideas like this. I mentioned, uh, you know, Stephen Miller wanted to send a quarter million troops to the border right. to deal with uh, alleged caravans coming north. It was just ideas like that, that, I felt that if I wasn't there and an uber loyalist was in my position, if I had left early, if I if I resigned on a spot or spoken up and was fired, as I prob- probably should have been, that there wouldn't have been somebody there to push back on these bad ideas and kind of keep things on the rails. And that was my simple logic. Were you compelled to hand some of this over to the press while it was happening to neutralize the situation through the media? You know, you know, I didn't feel I, I was never comfortable with leaking stuff like that. So I, I, I never leaked classified information or stuff like that. Uh, I, you know, people believe that's a way to do it, but that just yeah. k- kind of wasn't my style. We're talking with former Defense Secretary Mark Esper about his new book, Sacred Oath, on Bloomberg Sound On. Two days after you were confirmed uh, by the Senate, President Trump held uh, his phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, the call that, of course, was the, the center of an impeachment trial. It is now well known that he withheld military funding from Ukraine, and it's something you describe arguing about. You convinced him, Secretary, to provide that money? No, I I don't think I did. As much as I tried and John Bolton tried and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, we tried individually and together to to kind of get him to release it. It wasn't until this the whole story about the phone call came out in the press uh, that, uh, uh, I think it was September, so that I learned all about this. And I, I think he just relented on his own, given given what was revealed. And so uh, <laughs> I like to claim credit for it, but I, I was just uh, one of a few people pushing hard to get this released because we saw the importance to this young democracy. Sure. We saw how important it was to signal to the Russians that we were serious about helping the Ukrainians out. And look, the president does deserve credit for releasing lethal aid to the Ukrainians, the Javelin missiles at the time. His predecessor had not done that. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, again, good and bad in all of this. Did he make Ukraine less secure, though, in that period of time? I don't think so. I, I, others have asked me this question. I don't think it had really had a material impact. A few months of delay, we, we were, can pushed it out pretty quickly. And and of course, now that's three years ago. So I yeah. don't think it had a material impact in terms of uh, the Ukrainians having that that system at the time. Former President Trump has said many times that Vladimir Putin would never have invaded Ukraine if if Trump had stayed in office. He says they even talked about that matter specifically that Putin brought that to him. Were you ever aware of conversations like that? No, not at all. Uh, not at all. And I, and I think his, you know, his assertion that that wouldn't have happened is just an unknown. Who, who knows what Putin would have done and why? Uh, only Vladimir Putin knows why, why he started it and why he continues it. And it's been just a strategic failure for him in so many ways. Bloomberg spoke uh, just last week with Fiona Hill, uh, 
told Bloomberg that she thinks Putin would have invaded Ukraine if the election had been overturned. In other words, if Mike Pence had not certified the win for Joe Biden, Donald Trump somehow stayed in office, that he would have just moved across the border. Do you agree with that take? I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard. It's who knows? Thank goodness, um, you know, Vice President Pence did his duty and did the right thing. And we are where we are uh, with regard to, you know, seeing the tr- peaceful transfer of power after a legitimate election. So what are your thoughts on Ukraine right now? We've talked about this uh, about a month or so ago. It was a, it was a pretty different scenario now. Are you of the mind that Ukraine can win this war? Yes, and I think they are winning. And I think the Ukrainian people have show, showed great courage and what it means to fight for your country, uh, to show leadership under fire. And they, you know, for a country that's what a uh, a quarter of the size of Russia, its military is a tenth the size of Russia. They have really beaten them back in, in numerous areas. And, 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 you know, so much talk about Russia in this phase, too, would consolidate the Donbass. It doesn't yeah. appear that they're able to do that either. So I think, you know, the, the Russians failed to live up to our expectations in terms of their military prowess. And the Ukrainians really surprised us in terms of their capability. And uh, look, we, we uh, at DOD, I made it a priority that we prepare to fight the Chinese first and the Russians second, it, it's, it's was something we never wanted to do. But uh, the Ukrainians are now are fighting that fight. And I think we should continue to support them. I'm sure you saw Turkey uh, today signaling uh, that, that they do not support expanding NATO to include Sweden and Finland. Uh, you've got experience with the Turks uh, kicked out of the F-35 program, if I can use that language. And an interesting role that that uh, Erdogan is playing right now is, is he angling for something or, or is this a deal breaker? I don't know. I didn't see that news. I'm, I'm curious now as to what they said and how they framed it. But uh, look, I think we should keep NATO expansion open. If a country wants to join and if they uh, are net positive to NATO, then we should admit them. And I think in this case, it wouldn't be a net positive if Sweden and Finland joined. Uh, it yeah. would give us greater military capability. It would shore up the northeast flank of the alliance. Uh, they're two strong democracies. They're willing to spend money. Uh, we should let them in and we should do it sooner rather than later because we all see it, the, the threat that Russia brings to its neighbors. What are your thoughts on Vladimir Putin right now? People are questioning his mental capacity, and it's very clear that he doesn't have an exit strategy. Is he, is he more dangerous the more he's painted in a corner? I think generally people are more dangerous the more they're painted in the corner. He's yeah. painted himself in the corner, though, in this case. And look, everybody wants to try and say their people are mentally unstable when they do things that we don't expect or desire. Uh, who, who knows, right? Uh, but clearly he has painted himself in the corner. It's been a strategic failure from day one. Uh, not only did he manage way back in February to push uh, Ukraine closer into our arms, but ended up bringing more NATO troops to his borders and, and in unifying NATO also. And now he's facing the prospect of two traditionally neutral countries, Sweden and Finland, possibly joining the alliance. Yeah. So look, it, it continues to be a strategic failure. And if you look at what's happening on the ground now in Donbass, it is a tactical failure as well. Uh, the weaknesses of the Russian army, the military have really been exposed here. Incredible. Secretary, you mentioned June 1st, and you've expressed regrets for what happened that day. Uh, I think you felt like, if I'm reading the book correctly and, and hearing the stories that you've told, once you realized what was going on, it was too late. What would you do differently if you could relive that experience? Well, I wouldn't have walked across the park on June 1st, and I would have told Millie to, General Milley to stay away as well. But Would you have been you know, fired? We, we may- What's that? Would you have been fired for that? Uh, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, you, know, you know, we didn't know what was going on. As, as I write in the book, you know, I got a, a, a phone call at around 620 that day to turn yeah. around. The president wanted an update at the uh, at the White House. And uh, 
on the events for the evening. We get there and we learn that there is no update. The president wants us to go walk across the park to see damage. Yeah. And uh, again, if I hindsight being 2020, could I have refused and, and been uh, fired? Maybe, you know, part of the tough job with the secretary of defense is on one hand, you have to remain apolitical for the institution. But on mm. the other hand, you're a political appointee. And so these areas get gray. But I think clearly in this case, it was uh, a mistake to be there. Uh, particularly after law enforcement just pushed uh, people peacefully protesting out of the park. And, uh, and I certainly would have told General Milley to stay away. His instincts were, were, you know, would have been spot on as well. And I know he regrets the moment too. And, and look, we, we came clean with it. I sent a memo out the next day within 24 hours expressing to all of DOD the importance of us remaining apolitical, uh, the importance that we provide support to civilian authorities. But on the other hand, we have to respect Americans' right to uh, express themselves and to assemble peacefully, uh, particularly in light of what happened with the tragic murder of George Floyd. So, um, you know, we did our best to kind of reconcile and, and, and kind of own up and take responsibility for it. And then I became committed, of course, from there on with the four no's and making sure that I, I did even better in terms of keeping uh, DOD out of politics. Secretary Esper, it's entirely likely that Donald Trump will run for president again. Entirely likely he will be the Republican nominee in 2024. With this book that you have written, the picture you've painted, the stories that you're telling here, do you believe that Donald Trump is unfit to run for office again? Will you campaign against him? Well, look, I don't, you, you framed it as it's entirely likely. I don't accept that it's likely uh, that he will run. I hope that he doesn't run. And, and why is that? Because I think, uh, you know, candidates for elected office, the highest office in the land, but any office for that matter, have to meet some criteria for me. You have to put country over self, uh, number one. Number two, you have to have integrity and some core principles that guide you. And number three, you've got to be willing to reach across the aisle, work with others from the other party and unite people. And, and look, Donald Trump just doesn't meet the mark for me in, in those, those areas. And, and that's why I can't support him. Would you actively then work against the candidacy if there was one? Well, I don't know what that means, actively work against the candidacy. Well, I'm not, you know, political person by nature. To, understood. Uh, Just in terms of writing that, columns, maybe even doing a campaign event. We'll see. I mean, I, look, I'm hoping there's a new generation of, uh, I, I believe there's a new generation of Republicans out there who will, who will campaign. I hope they'll run uh, in, in 24. Uh, that We'll see that right after the midterms. But I mm-hmm. hope that they will uh, carry on a Republican banner and push those same uh, core pol- policies Frankly, that Donald Trump did. Look, to, to his credit, uh, Donald Trump pushed traditional Republican uh, policies. He made progress on many of them, whether it's lower taxes, deregulation, smaller governor, government, building a wall, rebuilding the military, conservative judges on the bench. You name it, he made progress. Too often, though, he went too far on some of these things. And, and too often, he, the, the language was coarse and divisive. We need Republican leaders in this next election who will not only advance those same uh, policy objectives, but do so in a way that is more inclusive, that will grow the Republican base, that can win elections. Look, you, you can't really uh, advance your policies if you can't win, a, win elections. And last time around, we lost the White House, we lost the Senate, we lost the House, and we mm-hmm. cannot afford to do that again. He was there, former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, the book Sacred Oath, Memoirs of the Secretary of Defense during Extraordinary Times. Secretary, thank you for your time and answering my questions.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Just Bloomberg Sound on. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Want to assemble the panel very quickly on this because we need feedback from Jeannie and from Dan. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano joined today along with Dan Flatley, Bloomberg National Security Correspondent. Jeannie, the big question here, and I tried to get to this right at the top, uh, was was whether the, you know, the sacred oath that he talks about kept him on the job and why he didn't speak out earlier. He has been criticized for this. Was his answer satisfactory? You know, I, I think that's the big question here. It was fascinating to listen to him talk about that and the fact that Alito swore him in for that reason, right where you started. Yeah. And that's the difficulty in the United States. We have civilian control of the military. You try to keep the separation between politics and the military. But as his book and your interview just underscored, very, very difficult line to walk. I think his answer is not going to fulfill, you know, satisfy everyone, but it is an answer. He did the best he could, and he was fired by tweet at a very mm. peculiar, uh, not peculiar, a very difficult time with a president who did not want to leave office. He sure was. Uh, interesting, uh, Dan, to, to, to read Secretary Esper's story about being fired. He actually did get a heads up. He got a phone call from Mark Meadows. Uh, telling him that he was not loyal enough, that the president was going to fire him. The the tweet, the infamous tweet went out about a minute after they hung up the phones. Should Mark Esper have spoken out that day, Dan? You know, I think that, you know, what you've heard from Esper is, and you've heard from a number of Trump administration officials, particularly those who are in the Pentagon, like uh, Jim Mattis and others, is, is a lot of anguish over where the line to uh, their duty to their country ended and where their their line to the duty to to the president uh, at the yeah. time Donald Trump uh, began he says and he talked you to know Colin Trump, Powell, everyone told him to stay Dan yeah yeah I mean I think that uh and this is the this is the dilemma that a lot of these folks found themselves in do you do greater damage by speaking out uh, immediately um and I think you know what 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 reflects some of you know, poorly on him in some quarters or some some critics have raised, which you raised at the beginning of the interview is, you know, now you can say, well, you're only talking about this because you want to sell books or something like that. Sure, but yeah. I do think that, you know, when you're talking about sensitive areas where uh, military strike uh, strikes could be carried out or, or things of that nature, um, there's a lot of care that you might take with something like that, 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 that may not come into play with some other political considerations. So it's hard to know unless you're really in that position. But I think you know, uh, Secretary Esper, former Secretary Esper, was wrestling with a lot of those, as, as some other defense officials in the Trump Trump years did as well. You, you can hear it in his voice, absolutely, as he as he makes the case for this and, and describes wrestling with it, Jeannie. The stories, though, are really something. Bombing cartels in Mexico, sending missiles over the border, uh, the hurricane gun uh, with China. The secretary was trying to go a little bit easy, saying, look, you know, you get this job as president, you may not be a, a big military mind, the first couple of days on the job, but this was his last year. And some of these are, are unbelievable without corroboration. 
they're they're absolutely stunning. And I think he takes great pains to sort of give Pre- President Trump, former President Trump, every benefit of the doubt and praise him for certain things. Yeah. The one that really stuck with me was the one about Stephen Miller, the president's close aide. Quarter of a million troops. Yeah. And, and also the, the head of Baghdadi uh, dipping it in pig's blood and parading it around with uh, to warn other terrorists. You know, Miller has flatly denied that. But it is a stunning revelation. Absolutely incredible. I appreciate your insights. Jeannie Shanzano and Dan Flatley with us for an instant reaction to our conversation with former Defense Secretary Mark Esper. A conversation you will not hear anywhere else today on the radio, I might add. We'll check markets, traffic for you as we try to get home here on a Friday coming up here on Sound On. And then we'll talk more about Donald Trump with Eric Larson. He interviewed him about his new lawyer. It's next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Fastest hour in politics with the headline, Trump's lawyer leads counterattack from her five-attorney firm. Bloomberg's Eric Larson writing about Alina Haba, who's taken over some of Donald Trump's highest-priority legal fights. Eric spoke with the former president about it, and he speaks with us next. Over the past year, she's taken over some of Donald Trump's highest-priority legal fights, including challenges to the New York Attorney General's probe of his businesses and his defense in a fraud suit brought by his niece, We're talking about someone you may have never heard of, Alina Haba, 38 years old, the subject of a great column written by Eric Larson here at Bloomberg. You can find it on the terminal right now as he writes in the subhead. Haba is spearheading the former president's aggressive legal tactics. Former President Trump talked about those aggressive tactics with Eric. Here he is. I wanted to get more aggressive because, frankly, uh, you know, I sit back here and let people take shots, and uh, I did nothing wrong. And, uh, no, I wanted to get more aggressive, and I will be getting more aggressive. Eric Larson joins us now. What does he mean by that, Eric? What's coming next? Well, you know, he wouldn't exactly say what was coming next, uh, but uh, I, I, I suspect we might be finding out soon. But But clearly he has been going after his enemies in recent months. Uh, you know, not only has this uh, new lawyer, Alina Habba, taken over his defense in cases that had already been filed and had been dragging on for a while, she's also filed uh, three pretty big new lawsuits on his behalf, one against the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, trying mm-hmm. to halt her investigation into his company, another suit filed against his niece, Mary Trump, who, as you mentioned, had sued him earlier, filing a $100 million lawsuit against her and the New York Times because she was a source for a big award-winning piece about his yeah. finances. And then another suit against Hillary Clinton filed a few months ago down in Florida over a big alleged conspiracy to undermine his presidency with the Russia claim. So she's really gone on the offense. How important is it uh, to have this new law- uh, lawyer on hand versus Trump telling his legal team what to do? Uh, you know, I, I feel like it, it doesn't sound like it was a decision that was made very lightly. You know, I interviewed them both, as you said, and it sounded like um, his existing lawyers, he had plenty, uh, but but they didn't seem to be 
carrying out or they maybe they weren't as excited about his legal strategy. They weren't tough um, enough for him. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they in, in the cases that he had already been defending himself in, he also went on the attack in those ones. You know, he was tired of these cases dragging on. In his view, they should have been dealt with. Um, so he threatened counterclaims, for example, against two women who had accused him of sexual assault and then sued him for defamation yeah. um, when he denied it. You know, they, he, he threatened claims against them. Um, so she says that she's just an aggressive attorney, mm-hmm. that they talked about it, and she was willing to, to uh, start these new fights. You write about how she was hired. Haba came into Trump's orbit after becoming a member of his golf club, Bedminster, New Jersey. The, the, the former president says, I met her at the club. I said, what do you do? She said, uh, well, other people at the club knew her and they say she's an excellent attorney, which she is. I gave her a couple of cases to handle. She did a good job. This is how the former president of the United States hires his, his new legal counsel. Yeah, you know, and, and frankly, it really wasn't too surprising once I found that out, because when you think about Trump, he is the guy who, you know, likes loyalty. He likes people who like him. He likes people who like his brand. You know, where else are you going to find the true Trump believers than at his club? <laughs> people who are already, I guess you could say, vetted and they're wealthy and they're people who like him. Um, he likes that. So uh, as he said, and as she said, she had represented some other members at this club and they had recommended her to him because, of course, you know, he's always on the lookout for, for legal work. I think people must be aware of that. So yeah. it just went from there. Uh, which of these cases uh, are the most urgent uh, as he prepares to decide whether to run uh, for office here? Is it the New York Attorney General's investigation? Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. Hands down, there's so much at stake um, in this investigation, and it is wrapping up. They were just in court today in federal court in Albany. That's where his lawsuit is filed. Haba was in court arguing there against the attorney general's motion to dismiss that case. Um, But the underlying investigation is ongoing. Uh, It could lead to a lawsuit being filed against the Trump organization or Trump Mm -hmm. himself or Mm -hmm. Don Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump. Ivanka Trump, they're all involved in the business and have uh, been, uh, you know, subpoenaed in this in this investigation. Um, And it alleged, you know, if they do allege something, it would have to do probably with asset valuations. The attorney general has said that the probe has already uncovered significant evidence that the company has used misleading asset valuations for years to get better terms on insurance and loans mm-hmm. and even taxes. Uh, so it potentially could be um, a, a, a big lawsuit that could drag on certainly um, into potentially 2024, depending so on how So that's the point, though. Yeah. So this could hang over a potential a presidential race. This would be brought up in every debate and, you know, every interview. Exactly. And he's already laying the groundwork. And so is his lawyer, Alina Haba, uh, you know, to basically accuse um, accuse uh, the attorney general and any judge involved of bias against him. um, Should anything not go his way, Um, they will just say that it's more of a witch hunt um, as more of the same. That's that's what they already do. So, in in a sense, this lawsuit that she filed on his behalf is is creating potential um, uh, not evidence, but, but giving them talking points for if this doesn't go his way. Boy, how come you didn't go to Mar-a-Lago, Eric? What happened? What's the, what's the phone call all about? <laughs> well, my, my invitation was lost in the mail. I think mm. <laughs> I understand it's very nice this time of year. 
I, I, Eric I, Larson, I, great work. Thanks for coming to talk to me about it, and thanks for bringing us the sound of Donald thank Trump. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you. Trump's lawyer leads counterattack from her five-attorney firm is the headline. You can read about it on the terminal. Alina Hobbs, Eric writes, he, I guess he, well, he interviewed her at, at her at her house. Keeps a framed news article on a wall of her well-appointed five-bedroom mansion in New Jersey with a distinctive signature scrawled across it with, yes, a Sharpie. Alina, great job, the former president wrote on this November 21 story. It was a news story about a lawsuit that was brought to him by one-time apprentice contestant who accused him of sexual assault then sued him for defamation when he called her a liar. It's an interesting world we live in. And we'll talk about it with the panel as we bring in Jeannie Shanzano, solo panel, here on Sound On Next. We'll check markets and traffic for you as well. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Could there be an upset in Pennsylvania? It's starting to look like it here as we prepare for next Tuesday's Republican Senate primary in the state, in which Donald Trump has, of course, endorsed Dr. Oz. That got all the talk, right? Oz versus McCormick will make way for Kathy Barnett, giving the frontrunners a run for their money here. Thanks for being with us on the Friday edition of Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington and joined by Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. Jeannie, this has become a remarkable story. Uh, Dr. Oz, of course, already famous. He's got a lot of name recognition. David McCormick got a lot of money, have spent millions, $12 million for Dr. Oz, almost as much for David McCormick. Barnett has spent $137,000 on TV. And as I look at the real clear uh, poll of polls here in this particular race, and they're in they're, they're within one point of each other. She's now in second place here. It's Dr. Oz 23, Barnett 21, McCormick 20. What's going on in Pennsylvania? It is stunning. I, I was looking at the same real clear politics polling average. You look at Barnett's numbers April 3rd. She's polling around 7%. Today, as you mentioned, she has surpassed McCormick with all his money. She is within a margin of error of Oz, and she's at about 21, 22%. It is a remarkable trajectory. I think part of what has happened here is that Oz and McCormick have been so busy shooting at each other, and Kathy Barnett has been out there now she has said many things that people find objectionable um, she is a MAGA candidate right she, to be clear she's not endorsed by Trump but she's she's in the in the vein she may be more MAGA than Donald Trump to be honest she yeah. is you know she and she has let's face it said a lot of things that people may find objectionable but that play to this primary audience in the Republican primary in Pennsylvania and so what you know the problem for the Republicans of course is they're concerned she may not be a great general party 
candidate, general election candidate, but she is really, really strong. And so while McCormick and Oz have been shooting at each other, she herself has shot up, as you mentioned, and not spent a lot of money, which is absolutely stunning. Uh, Donald Trump out with a statement yesterday. It says, Kathy Barnett will never be able to win the general election against the radical left Democrats. She has many things in her past which have not been properly explained or vetted. But if she's able to do so, she will have a wonderful future in the Republican Party and I will be behind her all the way. Uh, He goes on to say Dr. Oz is the only one who'll be able to easily defeat the crazed lunatic Democrat uh, in Pennsylvania. I'm assuming he means the lieutenant governor Fetterman. that's a quite a backhanded compliment, isn't it? It is. And you know what's so stunning about that is that's exactly what people said about Donald Trump before he won in 2016. The same thing. He can never win. He says outlandish things. He has no political experience. But, you know, one thing that Kathy Barnett has going for her, in addition to other things, is she has quite a remarkable story. And that story, that personal story, has been resonating with Republican primary goers on the ground. She has made flubs. As I said, she has said things that people find objectionable. And yet her star, the more they listen to her, continues to rise. She is more MAGA than Donald Trump in some Mm. ways, and it is resonating with people. Born of an 11-year-old mother, she calls herself a product of rape in a campaign that has seen abortion creep up as a major issue here, of course, following the leak from the Supreme Court. A lot of questions as well about whether Mehmet Oz is actually pro-life. Right, Jeannie, we've heard a lot about this. They had a debate recently. It was next our media. I want to hear from both Oz uh, and McCormick. Here's Dr. Oz first. President Trump endorsed being quite clearly in the first point he made about why I'm a conservative America first uh, Republican. He said that I am pro-life and I am pro-life. OK, so he's uh, explicit about that. Uh, McCormick says not so much. Here he is responding. Mehmet has flip-flopped on every major issue, and you can go to his own comments. May 21st, 2019, an interview at The Breakfast Club, he essentially said that he was worried about the pro-life movement um, that was um, creating fights. He was worried about states putting in place pro-life legislation. Is this a conversation that's just sucking up oxygen here in a Republican primary, Jeannie, or, or will it help decide the outcome? You know, it it feels like McCormick really believes that you listen to these ads that 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 inconsistency on Oz's Mm -hmm. part is going to hurt him in the election. But again, just look back at Donald Trump. He was pro-choice. He was pro-life. He had been, you know, in in various positions, not to mention he had been a Democrat, an independent, a Republican. It didn't matter. And so I'm not so certain that this idea of, you know, flip flopping inconsistency is going to resonate with voters on the ground. And, you know, as you look at the Democrats, it's so fascinating what Fetterman has done is he stopped really talking about issues. He's, you know, a left wing sort of guy. Mm. He's a, you know, progressive in some ways. But he started talking about the fact what I'm a fighter. I will fight for you each and every day. It's that kind of talk that's resonating with voters on both sides, not issue consistency. And so I'm not sure this is going to matter that much. We've had, uh, you know, this weekly storyline going, Jeannie, about whether the Trump brand is still intact, it was in endorsements matter he had his first loss of course uh in this latest go around uh but he's had a a pretty good record so far i think we have to admit he ran the table uh two weeks ago ohio indiana who had some trouble in nebraska uh are are we gonna keep doing this every week or are we gonna look at kind of the primary season as a whole before we judge donald trump 
I think we'll look at it as a weekly <laughs> blow yeah, by blow. And then at the end, we will look at it overall. But I don't think anybody can turn a blind eye to the fact. Just listen to this show that you've done today. Donald Trump remains a critically Isn't important. That something? We've it, talked about him for the entire hour, even as we change topics. Yeah, absolutely. And can you imagine another former president who lost the White House no. if he could <laughs> command this much attention? Donald Trump isn't paying for this attention. He's getting free media attention. So he is is a force to be reckoned with. And certainly when it comes to Republican primary races, you know, he'll lose some, he'll win some, but nobody can say he's not important. And I go back, he has raised more money than the Republican Party itself, except two days in the last six months of 21. That's a remarkable statement right there. It is. But that that brings me back to this Barnett bank account, $137,000. This is a state with two major media markets, Pennsylvania. It, it's it, it's an expensive proposition running for Senate or for any statewide uh, you know, elected office here. And it's it's proving again that this has a lot more to do with things than money, Jeannie. It does. Uh, you know, I, I go back to, you know, the race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. You know, as a political scientist, we would always say money is the deciding factor. You have more money, you know, nine times out of 10, you will win. I'm not so sure that is the case anymore. Sure, money matters, but there are so many avenues now for candidates, if they can say outrageous things, to get attention via social media, which costs them very, very little. Spending time with Jeannie Shanzano, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor. As we wind it down here uh, a bit here, of course, on a Friday, as we all try to get home together in one piece, uh, Jeannie was the last day on the job for Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. We knew it was coming. She announced this weeks ago, in fact, as Karine Jean-Pierre takes uh, takes the, the podium, if you will, in the briefing room. So today was the last go around and she had, to, you know, to, to her credit, a lot of people to thank and a lot of people were there to thank her. This is just a, a taste of what it was like today in the White House briefing room as she brought this to a close. You know, this is my last briefing and it is, Brian. Um, and I wanted to start with a series of thank yous. Um, uh, I promised myself I wasn't going to get emotional. Whew. Okay. Um, um, thank you. Um, I want to say thank you to the president and the first lady. And then thanked everyone else she ever met. It was kind of an Oscars type of thing. Even had her husband in the room. Uh, a lot of warm feelings on the way out here. And she talked about her first meeting for this job, Jeannie with uh, with the president and the first lady. And they talked about restoring civility to the White House briefing room. Now, this came off, obviously, a very difficult end of the Trump administration when there were no briefings going on and a media, a news media that had been demonized as the enemy of the American people. Did she succeed in doing that? You know, I think all in all, she did. I mean, she even got praise from her nemesis in 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 the room, Peter Ducey of Fox yeah. News, <laughs> who described her as very effective. And you know, I sort of say that tongue in cheek because they had a you know sort of a love hate relationship, if you will, in there. But she I did. do think she did. You know, just if you look at the number of, you know, it, she she was committed when she came in. She said 
to holding these press briefings daily and gaggles when they couldn't be in the room. And she did that. Somebody by account said 91% of the days over the last 16 months, 16 months rather, she held briefings. I mean, that's quite a remarkable change from what we saw in the Trump White House. They said that the total Trump White House in the all four years, 205 briefings, she held 224 wow. already. <laughs> something else. So she, she did it, she did it uh, that way. And I think, you know, she also had a, a really strong background as she came in and she was able to parlay that into, you yeah. know, she she was no pushover. Obviously, she was she's a tough, tough woman, but she was also able to be effective in terms of knowing what reporters needed by way of information. Well, that, that's true. I mean, look, her time spent at the State Department obviously informed her for a critical period in American history. Uh I wonder your thoughts on her replacement, Corinne Jean-Pierre. This is one of the most difficult jobs in the world. It's one of, you know, frequently known as the second hardest job in Washington, right after being president. Uh, You typically don't last too long here. What's the job? What's the goal for Corinne Jean-Pierre? Yeah, we call her KJP now, Joe. Just, ah, <laughs> just to be clear, she's well got it. She's gonna got to get the president through this midterm. I think first of all, mm-hmm. and and I think she'll do a great job. She comes with an enormous experience, of course. Yeah, that's a lot to ask. Can you imagine being tasked with that job? I'd rather stay here. Talk to Jeannie Chanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and all the other smart folks I get to spend time with here every day. I'll meet you back here Monday. Thanks to Mark Esper for joining us on the fastest hour in politics. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.